And, and this is the reason why Netflix is creating an in-house studio is so that they can cut back on costs and payroll people instead of pay, um, you know, an individual director to, mm. to direct for an show X by amount show. of hours. They can, yeah, they can payroll everyone. They can payroll the producers or the PA, you know, everyone so that they could make 10 shows for the amount that would maybe cost for just one. Welcome back to another episode of The Business Behind. I'm your host, Zach Honovar, and today we're joined by Amelia Baker, co-founder of Blonde Mamba Productions. Blonde Mamba is one of the most incredible Gen Z-operated production companies, bringing modern creativity back to premium platforms. Amelia is actually a really good friend and used to work at Vertical Networks, a studio here in Los Angeles, California, that was instrumental in discovering Yes Theory and giving them their first big break opportunity on Snapchat. Blonde Mamba has developed content for platforms such as Facebook Watch, Snapchat Discover, as well as delivering internationally award-winning short films. Without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. Class is now in session. All right, this is episode two of The Business Behind. I'm your host, Zach Honovar, and I'm here with Amelia Baker, a good friend and co-founder of an incredible production company called Blonde Mamba. Amelia, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Zach? I'm doing as well as I can be while we're in this time <laughs> of social distancing. Uh, you live in LA, but you're back home now, right? Mm-hmm. I'm recording this from London, where it I think has better weather than uh, LA, so I'm I'm happy. <laughs> That's a rare occurrence, but it seems mm-hmm. like the world is in a lot of anomalies. Um, I won't waste too much time because this business behind is all about getting into the nitty gritty and giving our listeners as much information on a topic as possible. Um, Today's topic is the packaging, buying and selling of TV shows. Um, And maybe just before we pop into straight into the the meat of it all, um, can you give me a little bit more background on Blonde Mamba? And even just your history in packaging, buying, selling, and just being around the TV film industry. Sure. So I grew up in London. And um, when I was 15, wrote to Stephen King um, to get the rights to one of his short stories. And he gave me the non-exclusive rights. And I knew that in order to get ahead of you know, anyone else who had the rights to his stories that I needed to package it. So that meant finding a top tier actress. And I was in the UK at the time. So went and looked through all of the BAFTA winners, um, uh, actresses and reached out to all of them by picking up the phone and just called emailing them, called, called calling them. And one of them responded called Leslie shop and she attached herself to the project. And then we ended up making it and it was a lot easier to, to, to raise the funds on, on Indiegogo. Um, and then once we made it, it ended up getting, um, shortlisted for a BAFTA and going to the 2017 Cannes Film Festival. And so from that, I got an internship with a company called Vertical Networks, uh, that was founded by Elizabeth Murdoch. And their deal was to make content for Snapchat, um, when Snapchat had really just started. So I, went and worked there and that was less about packaging more about the ideas because it was reality um and then I quit 
few years ago to start Blonde Mamba with my business partner, Mackenzie. And um, our whole thing is how do we package up really amazing projects by emerging writers um, with the right talent so it can get seen by the right people. So our first kind of mandate is, you know, let's find a story that really has never been told and 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 make sure it it's going to work for the mainstream media, similar to how Fleabag was made uh, by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. So yeah, we have about 15 projects, mostly TV, um, and we are shooting our first feature film. Well, we were supposed to shoot it this month, but we've been pushed, we had to push it to April, uh, to August now. Wow. So uh, yeah. It's uh, it's it's a it's an interesting time to to be in the television and film market right now. Yeah, it seems like it's it's one of the more interesting industries, uh, regardless of the times. But definitely now, uh, need, recall, like calls for innovation. Um, from your experience, when TV shows are like, what is the first step? Oftentimes, and I know it, it can start from different places, but. Based on if you were to say like a majority of the time, what is the first step in the creation of a TV show? Sure. So for us, um, we love to look at the IP first. And that can be a book, that could be an article, or it could just be an idea that somebody comes to us with. And our first step from that is, you know, who who's a good writer? Like who could adapt this into something that we think has a chance um, on the network? So our first step is let's compile our favorite writers. So so we go through IMDb and go to similar shows to that show. So for our um, show Dog's Blood, which is about a female motorcycle gang, um, we went through all of um, Succession, all of... Um, uh, uh, What's, what's that other? Sons of Anarchy. Yeah, yeah, Sons of Anarchy. Yeah. And Mayans, all their writers, um, and reached out and, and, and kind of got one attached. And so and, let, let's stop right there. Cause even you're, let's say, yeah, great. We're making a motorcycle show. We go mm-hmm. like, Hey, what's a big motorcycle show? Sons of Anarchy. Let's go try yeah. to s- take some of the writers or get the writers to help us out and write like a pilot, which is an initial episode. Um, how do you start that process? How do you even one find the writers, I guess, through IMDb and then how do you reach out to the writers? What is that process? So I'm all about, and everyone knows this cold emailing. Like I have a great account on IMDb pro or variety insight where I can get the agent's emails and, uh, I kind of say, Hey, you know, I'm reaching out from Blonde Mamba. We really love your work. Um, this is our project. This is our edge on it. We'd love to just talk to you about it. And if you do that with enough people and just keep following up, they will respond and you'll, you'll get, you know, some, you'll, you'll get someone attached. But the, the other way of it is going to the agencies like WME or CAA and telling them the project. And then they find their writers that they think could fit this project best and give them to you, uh, to, to, to work with. Got it. So you can either directly reach out to the agents. And so an IMDb Pro account actually comes with the agents to the people that are attached to any film or are in the IMDb database. That's a huge, that's a huge tidbit of a a gem to be able to figure out how to find these people. Yeah, that and Variety Insight. Go, go get those and you can reach out to anyone. 
Got it. So you cold email and then so writers and then very like quickly, let's talk on uh, there's unscripted shows, which are like, I don't know why this example is coming to mind, but like punked, I guess, yes, theory isn't technically an example of an unscripted show. Um, and then scripted shows are like Grey's Anatomy, Sons of Anarchy. So mm-hmm. do both writers, are, are writers needed for both unscripted and scripted? Maybe more heavily so for scripted, but uh, does that process differ between an unscripted or a scripted show at all? Yeah, definitely. I think it, with unscripted, you know, you want more producers, like story producers to help map out what the show would look like. A lot of the time, the producers are going to be interviewing talent, um, you know, for those talent segments of the reality show. Um, And so they'll be writing their own questions that that they want answered and then kind of adjusting to that answers um, for new questions. So you want more of a journalistic story producer for that and less of like a drama writer uh yeah they i i wouldn't say they go hand in hand at all um you just that it's honestly that's why if you look at the credits to any reality show there's like 20 producers um and no writers yeah you you normally don't have a writer and we'll get into like the i think everyone I mean, everyone's watched a TV show at one point in their life, but I bet you a large majority of people don't actually even know what a producer does. And I didn't Mm. even know until, uh, you know, we started working (laughs) together on a really fun project, which uh, to give everyone context, because I'm sure this will come up, uh, Amelia and I and her company, Blonde Mamba, have been working to try to package an animated series um, through a friend of mine that had some IP that was incredible of a comic book named Morgan's Organs. Um, about basically uh, a college freshman who has been going through, you know, the the common uh, experiences of a college freshman, but you also get this really cool look on his inside, where his organs, or his organs, such as his mm-hmm. his brain, his penis, his heart, his lungs, his liver, uh, are all actually battling with one another, and that's kind of uh, what ends up bringing these emotions out of him in a very turbulent time. Um, and so uh, that's a very cool experience that we're going through right now, trying to, to package this thing. So just a little context, as I'm sure that will come up uh, later in conversation. Um, and so moving forward with that in, in the past, so you get you get writers, you're able to, let's say, through that process, attach some. Um, and then does it basically go like writers and then you go get talent? So you're getting like the actors or actresses. Um, mm-hmm. What are the like the next like really quick like? the steps that it usually falls into? Or is it kind of from your experience all over the place where, you know, sometimes you find the actors first and then the writers, or sometimes you find a director first, then the writers, Mm -hmm. how does that usually fall? I mean, and, and, you know, there's so many different circumstances. Like you could have an already written uh, piece of IP that's already got Nicole Kidman producing it and and they just Mm. want another production company on the ground. Um, so yeah, I mean, and, and I guess the first thing before you do anything is to look at the financial packaging, you know, like who do you want this show to go to? Because that really differentiates it. Do you want it to just be a US based show that that you'll just sell to Amazon or Netflix and and they'll get the rights? Or, or do you want it to be more worldwide where you have to go to different territories and try and sell it? So that's always helpful to look at, you know, is this going to be a Netflix show? Because, you know, they prefer 
these kind of writers. So you'd go and do your research as to who, you know, their recurring writers are or who they have a first look deal with. Um, someone like Ryan Murphy, who they're constantly trying to feed him um, IP and and projects because he has a $100 million showrunner deal there. Um, mm-hmm. So you got to do your research on who you want to go to first. And then you look at the writer. Um, and then after that, you have some sort of, outline you don't even need to write a script first it just can be a like a series overview or a bible um and a bible for context is like what's the series who are the characters um you know uh what is going to happen from season one to season five Mm. um and what are the tones etc etc and after you do that you can then take it out to agents to managers to think about who you know who could fit in this show uh as an actor or an actress um again like it's chicken and egg they might be like well we want to know who the showrunner is first um so you could also go to WME or CAA and look at you know showrunners that they represent Mm -hmm. or again go to IMDB Pro and look up showrunners that relate to your show so right now i'm interviewing a ton of showrunners for this one show i have called fangirl um which is about the first female nfl coach and we looked at friday night lights we looked at um uh sex education you know we looked at those more tongue-in-cheek ya showrunners um and then we reached out from there. You know, we're not going to mm. go and get Ozark's showrunner because they're not interested. So you have to kind of pivot it to the people that you think will be interested. And then you'll email again or cold email their agency. But a lot of the time, like for us at my company, I was lucky enough to get investment last year. So we have a, a public relations PR team who will do a press release every time we get the rights to um, a book or uh, a piece of IP. So then you have agents writing to you being like, hey, we have this writer, we have this showrunner. Do they want to come and, you know, be a part of this? Uh, Can you talk to them? Can you interview them? Um, So then once you have your showrunner, you go to your talent and it becomes like a pyramid where it's like easier and easier to get uh, the more, you know, A-list talent you have. So Mm -hmm. then you'll go to someone like um, Reese Witherspoon and and she'll want probably an EP credit and to be in it um, through because she she has a production company. and then once you have all of that, you then go to the networks that you think would be interested in. So, you know, whoever, like with Fangal, it was um, Freeform was our first kind of company that we wanted to go to. And then Amazon. Um, and, it, you know, I think this whole conversation is talking about the importance of the packaging and and that whole process before you even go to the buyers because you only have one shot with the buyers you know they're not going to read it again so you want to make sure it has the best possible chance of going to series um or to a pilot yeah no i love that and you you said uh you gave a term which i imagine many listeners don't actually know so i'm I'm curious how you would explain this to a five-year-old nephew what is a showrunner oh yeah okay um, okay, so I'll give, I, I think I'll do an example. So Grey's Anatomy, um, 
they had Chonda Rhimes, who I'm sure, I hope people know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she came up with the idea um, and then pitched it to a production company. And she was like, hey, you know, and I actually interned at the production company, the mock coding company that, uh, that ended up making it uh, with her. Um, so I got to kind of see firsthand how it was put together, but, uh, she then pitched to the production company and, and said, Hey, I want to be the showrunner, which is basically the person that will steer the ship of the show. So they will be in all the writers room meetings. They will hire most of the writers, um, all the directors, uh, they'll, they'll, you know, most often they'll write the pilot and sometimes direct the pilot as well. Um, but most of the time they're like the on the ground producer. They're the ones overseeing Mm. everything. Everything goes through them. You know, a good showrunner solves all the problems so that the producers above her don't really have to deal with that. It sounds like a jack um, of all trades that wears many hats, almost like a project manager of a show. Is that yeah, a good like exactly. a good kind of thing? Mm. But also they can dip in and out. Like they can be like, oh, I really love this episode. I really want to direct it. Um, or they can be like, no, I'm going to hire my friend off of Ozarks to direct this one because that's this scene and he'll do the scene really well because it's really dark and about drugs. Um, so Shonda Rhimes, you know, she has now like four or five shows that she's doing. So showrunners can, you know, be pretty involved with the show or like manage all four shows that are all happening at the same time and just surround herself with um, really great writers and directors. Got it. Interesting. And then how would you describe what are the similarities and then what are the differences between a producer and a showrunner, if if much difference at all? Yeah, so there's lots of different types of producers. And I think that's why you were like, you know, why are there so many? And (laughs) the thing is, is you have like the EP who um, is Mark Gordon, who was the guy that brought Shonda to ABC. Which stands for? ABC? No, uh, EP. Oh, oh, executive producer. Sorry. Got it. <laughs> and so he's the one that will sell the show. So the executive producer really just oversees the money, the deal, the showrunner. And then you have more of the associate producers, the, um, you know, line producers and the line producers are the ones making the budgets, making the schedules, working with the showrunner to make sure all the logistics of the shoot uh, all figured out. Um, And then you have your writers, um, but they don't, they're not normally managed by a producer. Um, They're managed by the showrunner. From from my experience, it seems like almost executive producers and EPs, as we'll call them, uh, are like people who are helping with initial stages and like packaging um, to get the thing to the place where like it even needs more writers, line producers, and et cetera. So it's, mm-hmm. that's been kind of the way I've seen it. And then it seems like line producers are just like, it's like grunt work. It's like you're actually yeah. putting pen to paper, you're filling out spreadsheets, you're clocking yeah. in who's going where at what mm-hmm. time. And so all the little nitty gritties of a show, like who's – uh, who's supposed to be in what trailer even like, you know, comes yeah. to like the work of a line producer. It seems. Yeah. 
and and the trajectory normally like if you wanted to be a producer like the executive producers top of the line like that's like the top of the the game and then below him or her is normally the the um kind of uh supervising producer and the supervising producer is supervising making sure the showrunner is doing the right thing and the writers are writing the right thing and they'll report to the executive producer and they normally come from the production companies um so there'll be like executives there and and then below that you'll have it kind of streams off so it could be like your line producers but you don't need to be a line producer in order to be an ep it's a good route but like you don't need to be um and then below them is the production coordinator so those are the people that just are like making sure the locations are all like uh accounted for and they've filled out yeah, all the right the paperwork and, and yeah, yeah. all the permits and the schedules are all good and then the uh production assistants are below the the coordinators and they'll like print all the uh, fetch the coffees and yeah <laughs> fetch the coffees and and so that's why a lot of people start off as production i love it and this is why i love conversations like this because it's been so fascinating and i think you kind of know this like every time you you you're seeing the credits of a movie or the credits of a tv show and you're like who are all these people Mm. Um, and what the and hell do so they do? Important. And they're so important. Yeah. And now you get to see like, these are real careers for people. And being in LA, I've noticed, um, you know, the same way in Toronto, a lot of my friends went into consulting and finance because uh, that was the job route that was structured for them out of the schools in the area. It seems like schools in the LA area all have a lot of feeding into this system, whether it's you go work at a WME, CAA, a UTA, or whether you go work at a, you know, an established production company or network and start to get your hands dirty as filling in some of these things for different shows. And if you're lucky, you could work at the production company that does Grey's Anatomy, and then you have that on your resume. Um, So it's interesting that I, I think it's really valuable for people to learn how accessible these things are. Yeah. And, you know, it's very different in each spot like for me I was lucky because I went to more of a tech place and and in tech once you blend tech and tv it's it's completely different like it's you you know I was still on set and I was a production coordinator and associate producer so the associate producers like kind of below the supervising producer and then not as common um but uh it happens a lot faster in these new companies, whereas in the old companies, like, um, you know, the ABCs and the WMEs, it just like you could be in the mailroom and the mail. Sorry, I'm kind of going out of order because I'm just trying to explain this in the mailroom is very like that's very agent management. You know, you are delivering mail and you really are the lowest of the, like people will throw staplers at you, you know, like, like an entourage, if, if anyone's seen that. Um, <laughs> and, and then you'll walk up to like a, a floater. So a floater is like, you'll, you'll be put on people's assistant desks um, when these assistants are sick or have been fired. Um, and or have left because they can't take it anymore and once you're on those desks you know you then want to meet the the agent who will be like oh you know you're a good assistant I see potential in you be my assistant and then once you're there 
you know, you can then like be a, a trainee agent and then be an agent. But that, that before you even reach the agent takes like six years. I mean, I mm-hmm. know assistants who have been assistants for like nine years. And then if that agent gets fired, then they're out with the agent, you know? Like it's, it's brutal, the agency and the management route. So I always recommend like do the PA, get that onset experience, network with those people, and then you'll be production coordinator in a year or two years. That's amazing. Instead of six. Yeah. And it seems as technology and, and the times evolve that that model is adjusting uh, a little bit, um, which is always good to see because um, I'm all for disruption and a new way of doing things. Um what uh, on the piece about uh, I wanted to go into this as an example or just to kind of chat about. Um, I think people, if they are familiar with the term executive producers, because recently, especially in the past, I would say two to three years, we've seen a, a huge increase in the amount of celebrities, uh, artists, athletes, uh, mm-hmm. executive producing TV shows that they either have very little involvement in or just stamping their name on this thing. So like LeBron James is a really great example, has executive produced a bunch of different shows lately. Drake, executive produced Euphoria. Uh, you had Stephen mm. Curry, the NBA player, uh, executive produce a golf reality show um, or like unscripted golf show because he likes golf. Uh, why is that? And what are these people getting out of it? And what are they contributing to these projects really? Sure. So I think... Um, I think if you're driving past a billboard and it says it's been EP by Drake, you're kind of, it's kind of cool. You're like, okay, well, this has been touched by Drake in some way. So I'm going to make sure I just watch it. So from the consumer point of view, I think it's a, it's great marketing materials. Um, from the network's point of view, you know, again, it's good for marketing, but also you have someone who's trusting these producers and the script. So you're more likely to take a swing at that project than if it was, you know, nobody was attached as an EP. Um, for, for their benefits, they get a nice EP fee. So like um, they're getting, like I, I'm, I'm trying to look at for an example. Um, they will get like a, like uh sorry hold on yeah like like these these people are gonna get fifty to seventy five thousand dollars per episode as an EP like they'll get a huge EP fee and that was also a pull but I think for someone like Drake it's not so much um again for the networks it's like um you. I guess you want to create a relationship with that with that person producer or that person so that they're like, oh, we like Netflix. Like we'll only EP stuff by Netflix. Like the Obamas have a deal at Netflix right now and everything, you know, under their banner of an EP, uh, they have a ton of projects and it's only exclusive to Netflix. Like the Obamas couldn't go anywhere else to make those shows only Netflix. So it's, it's nice to trap talent like that and to be like, okay, well, you know, you could, you can have this deal under us and then that's attractive to other pieces of talent. 
um, Amazing. Yeah, and, and that's really helpful. Answer. No, it's it, it it still it. I think it still gets the point across. And so, if we put all those pieces together, which are, you know, you find your executive producers, you attach your talent, hopefully in some sort of chicken and egg scenario with this platform, because the talent wants to know certain things as well. You have a couple writers, um, and you take it to a network, which. Um, is this? We'll talk about the differences between networks and platforms and the similarities. But you take it somewhere, you pitch it in a room where you're sitting there with your deck and your trailer sizzle, which is basically like a little short video presentation of what this show is going to be like. And mm-hmm. they like it. What are usually the next steps in getting that from, hey, we just pitched it in a room and the network or platform really digs it to that actually going to the next level of like getting implemented? And then also... In that situation, what happens? Do they just go, here's a huge sum of money, go make the show and deliver it by X date? Or are they mm. pricing out? Is it a lot more calculated in, in the sense of like, okay, you got uh, Drake as an EP, so we know he's got to get this amount of money. You got Gwyneth Paltrow as your star actress, so she's got to get this amount of money because we know her fee. How is it? How is that money usually in that room when you get an offer usually presented? And then how is that then put to action to execute the show? And what is that process usually like from a high level, at least? Sure. So with, um, with networks, like the old networks, they would normally make it with that studio. So like, they would make everything in house, all you'd get as a producer, pitching this idea is a nice producer. you'd become an EP. So so they would give you an EP fee. So that's normally a nice percentage that is all agreed by the parties. And on a nice big show, it's 50 grand prep. Um, But with with Netflix and Amazon now along, they kind of expect you to make it yourself. Um, So you'd get a nice EP fee as well as a nice producer's fee, which is normally a percentage of the... um, budget so commonly like you would present them with a budget of what each episode would look like and you'd work with your line producer to create that and then they would cash flow it so they would give you the amounts that you need in increments instead of a large sum all in one go um and then you know you keep them updated and present them with dailies and you know hey and and go to them and say hey I need more money for x y and z and then you need to present your budget and your actuals so that's like what did you actually spend on costume versus what you projected it to be um and then from that they'll they'll be involved and you'll normally have a point person at that network that they'll put you in touch with like an executive that's your point person um there's a woman on the board of our company uh called curry scopeland who uh is directing the falcon and the winter soldier for marvel and she has a point person called zoe who is literally by her side at all times and marvel i think does this the best because this executive is with curry in every decision, in every way. So she knows how the money's being spent so she could go and report that back to her boss. Um, but it's different with every network. Most of the time, they will have an in-house studio that will just go and make it. Netflix is now kind of creating that system instead of 
have trusting that outside producing partners to just go and make it. That that's really helpful. How who's been benefited the most from the transition to from networks to streaming platforms? Like who's won in that equation or in that transition of the progressive times? Uh, I think that the networks, the streamers, and the ne- the networks they they will always profit the most from this. They will always come up with them. You know they. Because they're the ones financing it, they're going to be the ones getting their money back first. So if they, you know, and and this is the reason why Netflix is creating an in-house studio is so that they can cut back on costs and payroll people instead of pay, um, you know, an individual director to Mm. to direct for an X amount of hours. They can, yeah, they can payroll everyone. They can payroll the producers or the PA, you know, everyone so that they could make 10 shows for the amount that would maybe cost for just one. Um, so I think it's really smart. Um, that was how Vertical Networks did it too. They expected us to not only come up with new ideas, but also be on the ground executing them. And that is so new and has really never been done. And again, like tech is always pioneering first. So I like people like Netflix and Amazon are catching on. Um, which is great because it's going to save them a lot of money, but also it's it's bad for people like me who, you know, will get no producer's fee, but will get an EP fee. So I'll make less money. Got it. And how has this affected, if, if at all, uh, actors, actresses? I know that you can speak a bit about like how TV went from being something that Hollywood actors would be caught dead doing to becoming something that every Hollywood actor is dying to do um, or, you know, is being compensated ridiculously to experiment with. Um, how did we get to that? How did we get to like, you know, a George Clooney probably rather retiring his career than being on a TV show to, you know, now we see uh, tons of movie stars transitioning to TV? Mm. I, I definitely think the networks, I'm mean, sorry, I definitely think the streamers helped. The streamers created this kind of sexy appeal when, um, uh, who's the guy in um, House of Cards? Kevin. Kevin. Spacey? Kevin Spacey. Okay, I'm going to start this whole question again. So <laughs> I think the streamers definitely helped in creating an allure for very big talent because it meant they get a nice paycheck, um, you know, per episode. They're getting paid a couple of million million dollars per episode. Like Reese Witherspoon was just paid $1 million per episode of her morning show. And I think there were eight episodes. So she got $8 million total. And again, like these, a lot of these, this big talent, gets an EP credit too, which is more money and they get some sort of creative control over it too. Um, They'll get to read the scripts beforehand. They'll get to give a round of notes. Um, So I think instead of just, you know, having an actor show up on set for a movie and it's done in 20 days, they can be a part of a bigger project that's more collaborative and they'll get more money. And it's kind of a little bit cooler because 
more people are going to see it. A lot more people are consuming TV than film. Um, again, like it's so funny because a lot of actors are like, I wouldn't be caught dead in a film nowadays, especially an indie film. I'd much rather be on a Netflix show because it's just better for their careers. Yeah, it's um, all brand, it seems like, in, in that regard. And I think yeah, one of the other and, things is... And to be is- honest, like, like I, I really have come into this industry recently, like five, six years ago. So I wasn't really around when film was still cool for, for actors to be in. It was more about they, they want to be in TV. Got it. And I, th- I think one of the things that I've noticed too is um, back in the days with networks, especially on uh, with cable TV or, or network t- television, there were only so many slots for shows. There's only 24 hours in a day. Mm-hmm. And if you were selling a show, the network had to ask themselves, where is this going to be slotted in? Is this something that we're going to play for late night television? Is this something we're going to play for morning television, afternoon matinees? And that really went away with streaming, it seems like, because TV became on demand for the viewer. And the viewer was able to turn on whatever show they wanted at whatever hour they wanted. They could put on late night television for breakfast. They could watch Simpsons at, you know, at 4 p.m. and at 10 p.m. And it didn't really matter. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, when at least I was growing up, Simpsons was on at a particular time on, I think it was like ABC or Fox. Um, And so that actually has created a huge, uh, I don't know if saturation is the right word, but huge supply of TV shows because no longer do you have to think about where is this going to fit? You just think, okay, we'll just throw this on our platform and give it as another option for people to watch. And it Mm -hmm. seems like that has actually created a huge, uh, a large amount of supply of TV shows. Like, you know, everyone goes on Netflix and goes like, what the hell am I going to watch? There's so many things here to watch. And it Mm -hmm. seems like that celebrity uh, attachment to a show is like this like little sparkle that increases the chances of getting someone to like try that show out. So I think that that's mm-hmm. also, you know, going back to our topic of like EPs is, you know, if if I hear that Drake is EPing a show, uh, I'm a diehard Drake fan. I'm going to watch that even if it's about unicorns and fairies, which I might have never like cared about. Um, or, yeah, you know, if I'm not familiar with any of the actors. it in some way. Yeah, like and I know with Euphoria, with Euphoria, I knew right away after the first episode, just by the music choices, I was like, okay, it's obvious that Drake has been a part of this, whether it's getting clearance on these songs or even just picking the soundtrack, I think is very important. But I think that's a very significant difference for the times is that, you know, before people were only selling X, a finite amount of shows per year. Now it mm-hmm. seems like the door is open and the floodgates are open for unlimited amounts of shows to be financed in a year. Um, all that actually has to happen is you have to like, it, it seems like a bet. It seems like Netflix, Hulu, um, even to some degree like Disney and, and Quibi uh, now coming out um, are willing to take season one bets to say like, hey, if instead of funding one show and going like all in, this show has to work. Let's do Ozark. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's do like mm-hmm. 10 things. And hopefully one of them becomes Ozark and the other, mm-hmm. you know, eight, nine, we can just like never make a season two. And if it works, we can make season two, three, four, five. Um, and it's interesting. I've even heard recently that Netflix is because they're sitting on so much data that wasn't maybe available during the network times that they're actually able to know one what shows you're likely to watch before you even watch it 
And two, are able to know when throughout a series do they hit marginal returns. So, you know, like a, a show that I watched on, on network television growing up was like Lost. And uh, mm. it was like all these people on a beach, they crashed and had to like figure out the mystical nature of this island. Um, and after a while, I think everyone kind of got confused. They're like, wow, they're really dragging this Lost series on and no one knows what the fuck is going on. And uh, it was like huge, obvious marginal like return and they had no idea how to wrap this show up. Whereas now Netflix actually knows after I think it's like one and a half seasons or two and a half seasons of any show, you get marginal return. So really mm-hmm. anything in their eyes past one and a half or two and a half seasons is strictly for like not pissing people off or else they're mm-hmm. actually more incentivized to instead of fund a season three or season four of a show to be like, fuck it, let's go take a bet and do another season one of a totally different concept to see if it hits again. Yeah, or, or even do spinoffs. So mm. like with Breaking Bad, they knew, okay, they knew from the beginning, we got to end it at this particular season. So Netflix was like, well, hey, we never explored the character of Saul. So let's, you know, give him his own spinoff. But the same thing happened, you know, with, with Grey's Anatomy. They did like two or three spinoffs from, from that show because people... People, and especially networks, they don't love to take risks. So if they know that a show is working and they know that a portion of, you know, the audience is going to go and tune into the spinoff, they're going to commission that over a fresh idea from somebody. Whereas the streamers are much more likely to take these chances because they know that it'll be in the back catalog, if anything, and somebody might discover it and and it'll end up you know, doing well. And I remember hearing this example um, from Amazon about the, the film Late Night with Mindy Kaling and Emma Thompson that performed really badly in the in the cinemas. And Amazon was like, oh, it's okay because once we put it on our platform, it's going to do really well. And it did. Like it made them back a lot of money just from it sitting on the platform. So you really never know when things are gonna what trends are gonna happen that shows are gonna become in fashion so I think that's the benefit of of having a back catalog of stuff on Netflix is you know they'll always have it and they can always push things you know closer to to the time so like um Valentine's Day they'll pick up all that shitty movies that really shouldn't be on that platform and really plug it and and it will create a huge success whereas any other day of the year nobody will find that or even try and watch it um but but it's interesting and again like the differences I think the main differences between a network and a streamer is streamers really aren't commissioning pilots networks are still very much like hey we need a pilot in order for this series to move forward and they waste a lot of money creating pilots. Like they'll commission 30 pilots and pick up five to series and they've lost, you know, if each pilot is million dollars or more to make, they'll lose that so much money. So I think it's smart that these streamers like, well, you know, we're going to really workshop the, script in the Bible and make sure it's really good to go. And then we're going to just commission the full series. Interesting. Does that mean that uh, they're actually becoming more involved to make sure that these shows are more successful? Or has the new pilot become season one? 
like instead of just commissioning a pilot and like almost like venture capital being like, well, you know, most of 90% of them are going to fail and we'll never do a, anything past the pilot. But uh, on the ones that we do do more than the pilot and actually end up commissioning a whole next season, we'll make our money back on all the ones we lost. Has it now just become like a, a season is a pilot almost? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It, it really is. And, and you would think from a financial perspective, like that's really stupid. Like they should really just be doing a pilot. But you look at something like you, which is that Pam Batchley series that was on Lifetime. They they made their first season on Lifetime and Lifetime canceled it. And then an executive from Netflix was like, we have to commission, we have to buy this and revive it for season two. And they did. And it ended up doing so well that Lifetime's probably like, well, you know, we should have we should have just continued. So, so even season one isn't enough. Like mm. sometimes they commission two or three seasons um, before users of, or people are like actually hooked into it. Um, but yeah. And, and, you know, canceled seasons or canceled series from their season ones can get picked up at different spots as well. M- mostly streamers. Um, but like if a series goes to die at Netflix, it's, it's pretty dead. It got it. No, who else will pick it up? A good example of that actually is top boy, which is on Netflix right now, I believe was on a different platform slash network. It was no longer, uh, like they were going to cancel it after season one, I believe. And then Drake, who's a huge fan of the show was like, I don't want this to die. Cause I like watching this show decided to like reach out to save it, hopped on as an EP and then took it over to Netflix where now it's like a top show and Drake is the EP. But it was almost like when you have the power and cloud of Drake, who seems to come up a lot in this conversation. Uh, is, yeah, no, I know. Drake is like the new wave of saving shows. I love yeah. it. So then he, <laughs> he was able to like just save a show that he just liked. And now he hopped on as an EP um, and took it to a different network too. Actually, one thing, one question that I'm genuinely curious about, uh, I'll give you an example to see like what actually happened behind the scenes on something like this. Like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was on Netflix for quite some time. I loved watching Fresh mm-hmm. Prince of Bel-Air on Netflix. And then after a while, it, it was no longer part of the archives of Netflix. I imagine Netflix didn't actually buy Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, but they had like a deal to license it and use it for a certain amount of time. How does that work with like older shows? As I've seen recently on Hulu, Seinfeld's on Hulu now, The Simpsons are on Hulu now through Fox. Um, How does that usually work? And uh, even things like, yeah, The Office is a good example um, that had to, you know, people were like petitioning, bring The Office back to Netflix when it got removed for a little bit. Well, so... A lot of the time, Netflix licenses. So this is the smart reason as to why they started making their own original content is because they knew that people will catch up with them. Like Peacock, which is Universal's um, streaming platform, that's about to launch. And that, I think, I don't want to be quoted on this, but like they own... um, The Office. I think it was Universal that made it. So... The office is now going to move over to to them instead of being licensed on Netflix. So 
that was why Netflix really ramped up their content creation these past few years is so that people would stick with them even when Friends or The Office or, you know, all of these older shows or films that are being moved over to Disney Plus or Hulu, um, Hulu and Disney Plus are, are both owned by Disney um, or Peacock, which is Universal's or <laughs> God, I know there's so many. There's a now. lot these days uh, too. And mm-hmm. and uh, what do you think about that as well? Like, w- based on being in the industry with all these different streaming platforms popping up, we have Quibi launching in like three days, four days. Mm-hmm. Um, w- do you think that it'll ever get to a point where we're paying for like six, seven different platforms? Does it get back into the days where we're buying like TV packages? Yeah, it's so funny because we are going back to the olden days where it was like, we'll package up like a network of different streamers and watch those. Um, Again, like I think they're all very different. Like Quibi's business model is completely different to Netflix's. Like they are not about sharing passwords and all, you know, being, watching it together. They're like, we just want premium talent you know, quick bites under 10 minutes. You know, we, we want to use your technology of your phone to turn it into like a transformative device that will take you into a different planet. Like, you know, they have incredible things coming. And I we had, we had just met with them about a month ago and they were showing us the technology and it was amazing. And it really has an edge on these other platforms who aren't really using their hardware to 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 watch them. So Quibi's creating more of an interactive experience. Again, their whole business model is let's only commission shows that have a list talent because that's marketing within itself. You know, you you don't need to to spend millions of dollars on billboards and marketing plans or press tours when you have your talent already kind of in your phone and 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 you know, there. Um, and again, like goes back to that idea. I'd be interested to know when it launches, like, are people going to watch shows just because it has a less talent in it? Or are they going to take more of the chance of watching, you know, Tiger Prince <laughs> and that has no a list talent in it or even EPing it um, or, or Fleabag, you know? So that these gems that I don't know if Quibi's going to get because, they're not taking a lot of risks with new talent. They're really just banking on the big ones. And mm-hmm. that season two of like that new wave next year of, of stuff they want to commission is going to be a lot more, you know, challenging, a lot, a lot bigger risks because sure. they, what they're doing is building that audience with trusted shows <clears throat> And then telling the audience, oh, hey, now you're here. Let's watch Fleabag, which <laughs> they wouldn't have commissioned um, until right. now. And next year, yeah. It's interesting learning the business behind anything. And I think the purpose of a podcast like this or why I wanted to make it is you realize so much of what happens in the world is often sometimes fortunately and sometimes unfortunately dictated by money. Um, Mm. and so, you know, you attach these celebrities to these shows because it's a safe, safer bet that with, you know, Chance the Rapper on the new series of Punked, which Quibi's doing, um, that 
more people will watch that because they love Chance the Rapper. And that's probably a safer bet to get a return on your investment than saying, hey, let's take this novel um, mm. and 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 option it to create a TV show um, or create a story from scratch and be able to tell this story and this is going to be a hit because this story is really captivating. That's a huge risk because that story mm. might not land um, and it might not do well. And that's, I think, why proven IP, which is kind of full circle what you were talking about the beginning or like when you started this off, it all really starts with uh, IP makes things less risky. Um, IP can be Toy Story, which is like, you know, that doing a Toy Story 10 is probably going to be better from a financial perspective in terms of return than doing a brand new, never told before Disney story about a brand new character that you're trying to build attachment with because Mm -hmm. there's established interest there. And that's why I think, right, we see Lion King live action. We see Disney 4. We see Mulan live action. We see all these recreations Uh because these things are actually safer bets financially. But but what's funny is, again, like, we we met with Disney Plus and they're like, you know— we have all of this back-end archive, but we're really now desperate for new ideas. Like, mm. pitch us something that we haven't seen that's that's not in our catalog that people aren't doing. So I think people get so, oh, my God, you know, we need to do the, the, the safer bets so that we can swing a little bit uh, harder at the 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 more risky ones so what's great with disney now and i i don't know post corona now i think they're going to be still wanting to hedge their bets but when we met with them a few months ago they were like you know we know disney plus is going to do well like we've we have the marvels and we have the nat geos and we have the simpsons and people are going to pay for it so so now that we've roped them in we want to actually make stuff that we like and that that we we can play with and we can experiment with and that we can, that can be the next Lion King. Um, so yeah, like people will hedge their bets on the safer ones, but you then look at the flea bags and the ones that just make it through and define a new genre that is so exciting. And, and it's so nice to see stuff like that because it gives room for, emerging talent to, you know, dream up to that level of Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Um, yeah. And and, then, and really that couldn't have happened with the networks. Like, I just don't think it, it – they just pump too much money into it, whereas the streamers just are, are allowing more risks and allowing more new things that, that maybe, you know, ABC or – NBC wouldn't would never like bank on because it's it's not got a proven record for sure and I think uh, if anyone is uh, interested in, in kind of learning more I think business is actually or uh, Disney is a very interesting like case study for all of this and uh, I just finished mm. the book by Bob Iger who is the CEO of Disney for the past 15 years actually until coronavirus hit where he uh, stepped down and appointed someone to be like a crisis CEO. 
Um, but it's very interesting even learning about all the, they created Lion King, Toy Story, and a bunch of others in a very short amount of time, which were all obviously smash hits. And then they went through a, a period where they were creating like Emperor's New Groove and a couple of other uh, films that didn't hit, you know, and have the same effect. And going through like the, you know, what ends up becoming a favorite. And oftentimes it's really interesting to look back and go, oh yeah, for like a period of five years, Disney has, hadn't created anything that you could go to a Disney store right now and find the like plush toy of, mm-hmm. but you still find these, you know, you still find Buzz Lightyear, you still find, um, different, like, uh, that Lion King, all these different like classics. Um, and so it's interesting to create, recreate those and ask yourself, what is that for the future? And can we over leverage our previous successes will obviously at some point get old. Yeah, I think I think Bob Iger is a really model example of what a good producer is. Um, he what he did was identify that Disney maybe wasn't doing a great job of animating their own stuff. They identified that Pixar really knew what they were doing and spent time. You know, Pixar spends so long in development years years and years and years and they won't green light something until it's perfect and even if they stop making it and it's not great they'll they'll scratch it all and stop from the beginning so how bob Iger was like let me acquire and partner up with the people that are doing it well and learn from them so that we can be better save disney and with a producer you you don't want to be the smartest one in the room you want to surround yourself with directors that know more than you and with actors that, you know, you you trust to just go and do that craft. You know, the job of a producer, if, if you're really good at it, you have, you just sit and do nothing, really. Because the only things that producers do is solve problems. Um, and those come and arise always, but most of the time when you have an experienced or not super talented people that you're surrounding yourself with because you've got your ego in the way. So you have to just have no ego and put that trust into people that you respect and that you like. And that was what Bob Iger did. You know, he really wooed Lucasfilm and, and, Pixar and and Marvel and really trusted them and gave them that space to shine. Um, whereas the CEO before had too much of an ego and and Steve Jobs was like, I can't do what I do best if someone's just trying to one up me every time I speak to him. So I love Bob Iger's book. I think it's like such a good read for anyone who wants to be in the industry because he's such a prime example of someone that just does not have an ego and is like, you know, I trust you to make the right choices. Yeah. Yeah, but that I'm book, here if if you can't. Yeah, that book stuck out to me as a as a great, great leadership book. And yeah, I second everything uh that you've mentioned. And uh as we're kind of wrapping this up, there's one thing that I'm I'm genuinely curious about and we can kind of touch on it really quickly. Um there are film fests. There's TIFF, there's Sundance, there's Cannes. Um there's no TV show fests as far as I know, why is that? So there's, there's, there's MIP, there's MIP, which is, is like in Cannes. And that's like one of the biggest TV fests. They're not, 
doing it as glamorously as film festivals. Um, but what they're doing is taking an idea that they have and selling it to different territories. So if you have an idea that is a book that you like, like we we just got this book that was a police surprise winning book that we've been asked to come on board and produce with this guy who's on the board of our company. And it's all about Lincoln's right-hand man, um, Henry Ward Beecher. And what we know we can do is sell that in the US because it's a very US story. But with the UK and with Canada and with France and with Italy, like we we don't know if we're gonna get that big of a big of an interest. So people go to these festivals when they have more of an international idea, like a meta mystery or a drama that they need to sell in different territories. Um, whereas you know streamers don't go to these festivals because they pretty much own worldwide rights um, mm-hmm. because they have, you know, you can log on to Netflix anywhere. Um, but the ones on networks normally, normally go to MIPCOM um, to, to sell in these territories. And and to explain to a five-year-old what happens at Cannes, what is, uh, is it like people have booths? Who's, who has the booths? Who's there? And what is the main purpose of these festivals on a film side? Yeah. So, um, it's, it's hard because it's, it's, I wouldn't even call it a festival. I would call it a conference Mm. and what it is, our company Blonde Mama got invested in by a conference company like called C21, who are a big international television conference. And a lot of the time it's a melting pot of, of, of international producers and writers that go, that try to sell their projects to, platforms and buyers and in Cannes, you know, they obviously had the film festival, but they have MIP and, and, and they, they do have booths sometimes. Um, but it's mostly people like Netflix standing up and giving a keynote on what Netflix is looking for internationally. So, um, when we were at C21, which is Content London, which is the company that invested in us, um, last year, Netflix stood up and gave this huge hour keynote on what Netflix India was looking for, what Netflix China was, you know, all these different strains of Netflix so that everyone watching, the writers, the producers can go away and find stuff to bring to them. Um, so it's a lot of keynotes. It's a lot of figuring out who who's looking for what and, you know, in what territories. And, and, and then after these conferences or these festivals, you go away and you're like, okay, we know that this show that we have can sell to Netflix India, but not Netflix US or it's just, and the thing is, it's, it's just so ever changing. It's like, the TV industry has changed so much in these past few years, and it's going to change so much now with Quibi coming out and with Snapchat and Facebook making stuff. And the Emmys have now created their own um, award for like short form TV. So it's short form TV, which is 15 minutes long, um, that is across all these uh, networks. And and streamers, um, mostly streamers, are 
uh, just having a moment and it, and I don't know where it's going to go. I, you know, I think it's going to, it's going to be platform agnostic, um, for, uh, international platforms. It, I, it's just so hard to say, like, it, especially with this Corona thing now, because people are going to want to spend less money, but make more, you know, that's where people like Blonde Mamba come in is, you know, we're able to make stuff not for $3 million an episode. We're able to, you know, use emerging talent who have had a great education in film and have been on these sets to make stuff for cheaper because equipment and technology is cheaper, you know, and, and, and film schools are teaching kids how to use, you know, like Alexas and Reds and, and do a really good job of that. So it it really is ever changing and, and it's, it's really exciting, especially for, for a young company like mine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why I was so excited to talk to you is, is, uh, not only do you come from a family that's been in the TV film industry and the production uh, industry, but you are at the forefront of making that change at the industry. Um, and so I, I look at you as that change maker and that like next step as who we'll see in, in five, 10 years actually uh, leading and being at the 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 top of of this entire kind of incredible, like very popular uh, industry that everyone consumes, but very few people know how it works. So I'm very, very honored and, and, um, oh. glad to have you on because I think we'll look back at this someday and go like, holy shit, we had Amelia Baker, uh, on a podcast <laughs> talking about TV, uh, before no, she took the industry Zach over. as well running this podcast. Zach is, I'm going to say this now. Zach is an amazing producer and I love that you're like discovering this side of yourself because you really are. Like it, anyone can be a producer. You just have to drop the ego, trust the people around you and just do your homework and read, read Friday, read Hollywood Reporter, get the IMDb Pro accounts going. And that's just one piece. You know, you could read an article in The New York Times and and say, OK, this is something I want to make and something that's missing in the market. And you can just go off and, and create it because People willing to collaborate, especially with with younger, more emerging people. So yeah, I think that's been the the most exciting part for me working with you on on uh, Morgan's organs and and just in general has been realizing that yeah, there's there's not actually a lot of walls in this industry. You don't really need a particular degree. It's all really relationships and just being a good person yeah. with good ideas, willing to to put in the work, make the asks, be confident in your beliefs, and uh, the rest of it can be kind of created through momentum over time. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been great. I hope that I could, uh, officially tack on the producer, uh, cred, uh, at some point, uh, <laughs> hopefully with you, uh, at some point in my career, um, definitely think that TV and film is an area that I want to be able to build more structure and legs in for one day entertainment. Mm -hmm. Um, curious with you, as we wrap this up, one thing I want to ask uh, all my guests are obviously the business behind is about jumping into a, an industry or a field of work and really figuring out um, what makes it work, what makes the gears turn. What are you curious about learning more about what's an industry or a field of work that you want to see me do a business behind for um, that would interest you the most? Um, That's a really good question. 
I mean, I, I loved your first one. I think I would love to see, I would love to see how music's changing. I know very little about music. And I think, I think I would, I just love to hear more about that industry. I think your questions are very great because they just cut through the shit. Oh, the fat. Sorry, you can flip that. And um, oh, no, you can swear. <laughs> I, I go straight to like, okay, let's be real. How do you do this? What are the barriers? How can I do this myself? So I think it's figuring out, you know, how can we use the tools we already have to create music? And you don't, you just need like garage band or you, you don't even need instruments. So I, I would love to see about that and, and the business behind that of, of what pulls apart Billie Eilish to me, you know, how, you know, what, what are the steps? Like how, how does that work? So, um, I'm excited to see that as well as, you know, more about fashion and more about philanthropy and more about like all the buckets that one day is covering. I love it. I love it. And yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Music will be, uh, potentially even next. Um, so yeah, Amelia, appreciate the time. Uh, where can people find you and, uh, reach out if they want to learn more? Yeah, so t uh, just type in blonde, B-L-O-N-D-E, Mamba, like a snake, uh, into Google, and then our website will come up. The greatest and company name of all time. Just reach out if you have any questions. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Amazing. Thank you, Zach. And thank you, guys. Always reach out. I'm We'll call email. I'm here. I love it. <laughs> all right, Amelia. Have a good night. Bye. Bye.